Welcome to a very special Has Been Hoops podcast. We're brought to you as usual by Hoop City, Australia's number one basketball training facility. If you want to raise your game, visit the team at hoopcity.com.au to find your nearest location. But this episode means a lot to Wertho and I. We're really, really fortunate to have super agent and vice president of Octagon Basketball, Daniel Moldovan. Wertho was his first agent back in the day and as we probably know now, he looks after Josh Giddy. He looks after Dyson Daniels. He's, in loose terms, a super agent of Australian basketball and the NBA. We couldn't be more pleased to welcome Daniel Moldovan. The interview's coming up right after this. Our very first guest, he is the executive vice president of Octagon. He is the mayor of Sydney. He, is, he owns half of California. Uh, and a very good friend of mine. It is Daniel Moldovan. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us on the Has Been Hoops podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. This is the <laughs> highlight of my uh, highlight of my 2023 thus far. <laughs> well, I, we were happy. It was a highlight of your morning so far. <laughs> that too. And uh, as I said to you off air, uh, we keep it real, real on this podcast, so I'm going to call bullshit on that. But um, <laughs> we'll start off with. We'll, we'll just jump straight into it. You are an integral part of probably, or one of Australia's biggest sporting stars in Josh Giddy. What's that journey been like for you so far? And how have you seen Josh grow up in front of our eyes as this shy kid? Well, he wasn't shy when he was around Chris and I back as a junior, as a smart ass, but this humble, well-spoken young man that comes across as the the Australian sporting icon that we all love today. You know what? It's been um, it's been a, it's it's been a remarkable journey because even though you know we've essentially been attached at the hip for three years now, he still continues to surprise me and shock me with the way that he speaks publicly, the things that he says in press conferences. I get the cheeky little you know. Uh, Josh Giddy that you guys know behind closed doors, but um, I just think for a 20-year-old, he's just done a remarkable job of conducting himself in the way that Warwick and Kim Giddy want him to be seen and, and viewed. And that, to me, is it's not an easy thing for any 20-year-old, as we see some of the decisions being made by Americans in the NBA. Um, and I think Josh is, you know, not only... Uh, making his parents proud, but but clearly making uh, making Australian basketball fans proud. And and, and don't you know? Let's let's be very clear here. Um, I do constantly remind Josh that behind closed doors, when he's being a pain in my backside, uh, that I uh, I wished he was easy to deal with. I always tell him that if only you were Mark Worthington, my life would be <laughs> not only easier, but I'd have so much less grey hair. But it's a work in progress. We'll get there. So, so Dan, how, how do you keep that moving forward? Because as were they mentioned, Josh is 
potentially the best basketball player Australia will ever produce. And, you know, we've all spent a little bit of time with him and the feedback we always get is that he's so accessible and he's so relatable. How do you, how can you possibly, when Josh signs his next $100 million contract and brings in this, how does he remain yeah, that? And, and what part do you play in it? Look, I, I think that at the end of the day, we all see, and, and, and you guys spend time with Josh away from the cameras as well, we see a kid that genuinely, not a facade, not an act, genuinely loves to be around people, fans, and in particular, loves to be around kids. You know, Josh's desire to, you know, do all these clinics and camps for kids is a little bit of a mirror into the way he views himself. He doesn't think of himself as a superstar. He doesn't think about, you know, am I going to be the greatest basketball player Australia's produced? Am I going to be a Hall of Famer or, or any, any of that fluff? Um, we see all of that talk in the media. Josh, Josh doesn't. He is, you know, the same Melbourne Tigers junior running around slapping the mascot on the back of the head in his eyes. You know, that that's that's what he is and he hasn't changed. And yeah, in terms of accessibility, you know, there was a big group of Australians that came across to OKC to watch some basketball games. Not only did Josh surprise them all with gifts from the team store, you know, unprompted, he went to the hotel, not just once after one game, after the second game, he'd already met them all on the Monday night. And then on the Wednesday night, the night before they all flew back to Australia, he went again. These aren't people he knows. He was just so excited to have a group of Australians there in Oklahoma that that's the kind of kid he is, you know? And um, I hope that that never changes. It's my job to ensure that that never changes. And we've seen, without naming names, we've all seen athletes that have gone the wrong path in terms of changing when money comes into play or fame and, you know, notoriety, um, you know, if Josh remains the way that he is today, which I am confident that he will, yes, I believe he will be the best Australian that, that we've ever produced. But more importantly, I want to make sure that he's the same kid 20 years from now as he is today. And um, that would be that would be equally impressive uh, as the on-court feats. Just as a... I'll tell you what, I better, I better make sure there's a detour at OKC with our next tours too then, man. I'll... I'll... I hope he doesn't change too. <laughs> I was going to say as a, a backdrop to some of your comments there, uh, when Chris and I both played for the Melbourne Tigers, we used to run the, the holiday camps and Josh would be at every single camp, every single clinic. He would get an autograph after the same people that he'd saw two days before, three days before, and it's good yeah. to see that he's still got that joy. Um, when you started this journey for you, Dan, did you ever imagine that you'd be in the place where you are and, and what drew you to basketball in the first place? Well, from your my, swimming background, but might yeah, I add, from your swimming background, my journey is a little bit of an odd one. I, I didn't play basketball, uh, besides messing around in the, in the backyard and we had a beautiful half court in our backyard, but, um, my father was extremely close with Mike Rublevsky. Mike was, a very, very close family friend of mine and, and, and seemed to, you know, always go out of his way for me. And I was in my first year of university and I got a surprise email from David Stern, the then commissioner of the NBA, that said, hey, Daniel, uh, Mike tells me great things about you. If you can get to New York on September 1st, I have an internship here waiting for you. 
total surprise by Mike Bobevsky. So I deferred university, went over to take up this job in the NBA head office. I was the first Australian to ever work in the NBA head office in New York. And that department that I was in, the team marketing and business operations division called Teambo, um, you know, was an unbelievable collection of, of, of uh, MBA employees that have gone on to huge things now. But to cut a long story short, I, I did my internship, returned home and got a phone call from one of my then colleagues at the NBA to say, can you get back to New York on Saturday night? I said, what for? He said, don't ask questions, just get back here. And I turned up and organized, he organized a dinner between he, myself, Mark Fleischer, the oldest agent in basketball history, the most experienced agent in basketball history, and Stephen Human, his right-hand man. Stephen now is the president of CAA. Um, after Leon's departure, Stephen took over that role. And Mark had just an absolutely legendary career. They hired me on the spot at that dinner. I knew nothing about what it meant to be an agent. Um, but they just liked the fact that I knew enough people in the industry that I would navigate success under their guidance in some way, shape or form. And without giving you the full long-winded spiel, I returned back from that trip and, and quickly called Gorge. And I said, uh, I'm an agent now. What the hell do I do? And Gorge said to me, all right, meet me in the park at Alexandria outside the basketball court that we train at tomorrow at 2 p.m. So I'm sitting at the the, the bench in that Alexandria park and out comes Gorge with a very young and baby faced Mark Worthington. He sits Mark down at the, uh, at the table and he says, Mark, Daniel, Daniel, Mark, Daniel is now your new agent. And that was it. No recruiting pitch, no dog and pony show. And I was literally gifted by Gorge, a future Olympian in Mark um, and David Barlow, may I add. And the two of them were, in essence, I hate to say this, guinea pigs in, in having the patience to allow me to learn the industry through their trials and tribulations and great successes. So I was really, really lucky that my introduction to this sport was through Wertho and Barlow and just navigating their careers, you know, to the best of my ability. Um, I wish, I wish I was the vice president of Octagon back in those days, because both of those guys would have gotten an NBA stint. But, um, but nonetheless, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a really lucky, uh, start to the sport for me. It's, it's cool that we can have this moment where we're actually talking about this now and, and, and the start and the beginning of our journeys together. Cause I was only in my second year in the league when this happened, uh, out of college, I, was uh, Charles Ryan um, had done my first uh, contract and basically Charles had said, look, I'm not an agent. You know, you need someone that's going to look after you. And Daniel was able to be there. Uh, and really, like he said, I was the guinea pig for him, but I'd never felt more loved by anyone at the same time. And I'm interested to know, how often do you give a Josh Giddy a pep talk the way that you used to give me a pep talk? Or how often do you give a Chris Golding a pep talk that used to give me a pep talk? Because uh, those were some of those pep talks that we used to have. Uh, even three hours before a game would make you yeah. want to run through a wall. So do you still give those pep talks? 
I just want to say that as I've gotten older, my pep talks are nowhere near as passionate as they were because my livelihood literally hung in the balance on your performance each night. You were my own, one of my two only clients. So they've definitely calmed down a little bit, but it's, it's very much a horses for courses thing. Bubbles doesn't like a pep talk, so I don't bother giving them to him. Um, Josh just laughs in my face. Josh's favorite line to me when I give him a pep talk before a big game, which like before Madison Square Garden or before Staples Center, Josh says to me, Daniel, grab your popcorn, sit back and enjoy the show. That's his response to my, uh, my pep talk. But no, I, I, miss, I miss giving my pep talks to you because you legitimately were breathing fire. I had to time them perfectly so that you didn't go and literally run through a wall too early. Uh, but those were some of my best memories uh, of starting in this industry. Can, can I just pick up on that, Dan? Because I've always found it fascinating how an agent's advice blends into that given by the coach and the team. Uh, and especially when you get to the NBA, because I really, I vividly recall sitting in an NBA locker room and looking around and it being best described to me as there were 15 businesses in the room all trying to figure out a way to come together and mutual benefit. So each one of those players in what you've just described may have very well had 15 different conversations yet have to come together with one conversation from the coach. How delicate is that type of conversation that you have not wanting to Great step question. on toes uh, of the 14 other yeah, players or the coaches? Act because you have to be conscious of the fact that um, you don't ever want to convey messaging that is going to result in a player stat hunting or, you know, essentially going rogue on team concept, right? And I guess we're lucky that a lot of our Australian players are just so naturally and organically team orientated, you know, they don't care or, or, or seek, um, you know, stats and, and the limelight and, and whatnot. So, so that, that's one thing working in my favor, but I am really, really careful with my messaging to all my players. doesn't matter if they're in Japan or Spain or the NBA or the NBL that they're the messaging that I give is about the team's success and their effort levels. It's never based around, you know, trying to use the current situation as a springboard to get to the next by hitting certain statistical marks, right? Um, you know, to, to be honest, the Xavier Cooks um, uh, season that we are just bearing witness to, um, I was totally fine with not having an MVP bonus they really like team-orientated bonuses in their contracts. So he only had a defensive player of the year bonus, which kind of goes, you know, it would have been nice to have gotten a financial bonus for winning MVP, but it goes against the messaging that I'm trying to convey to my guys. So it's a really good question, Chris. And I think that at the end of the day, if you preach winning and if you preach effort and energy and winning all of the, 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 the hustle plays, the rest organically comes, right? And and I think that, again, not to continue to hang the Americans out to dry, but we've witnessed um, the opposite of that. We've witnessed those that you can clearly see have the wrong people in their ear and the way that they play and the lack of, you know, team cohesion or trust in their teammates is abundantly clear. And you know that dad, uncle, high school coach, agent, whoever it is, is telling them, you got to get me, you know, double figure this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and I've, I've really tried my best to steer away from that as, as much as possible. 
Speaking of delicate balances, uh, you have quite a large stable of clients now. You have clients that are in the same position. You've got teams that want the same clients as who you've got to offer. How do you go about balancing that act of putting up multiple players for the same club in the same position? Yeah, honestly, I find that to be the trickiest and most delicate part of the job. I can manage the individuals. Um, I, I, I am on 24-7, 365. I don't really ever feel like I'm spread too thin in terms of giving the players enough of my time. But the balancing act of, you know, the so-called perceived conflicts with regards to the way that a team might view me or players may view me having other clients in their position is real. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's, it's not easy. What I do always try to make clear is that even though you might play the same position as somebody, no two players are the same. And just because the Perth Wildcats need a point guard, doesn't mean that just because you're a point guard, you, I could have gotten you that job, you know, if, if I pushed extra hard, blah, 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 blah. So on the team side, um, I understand that, you know, there is or maybe a perception um, that agents push players to certain teams and this, that, and the other. I can't help that. At the end of the day, what I do with my clients is I make sure that I give them the positives and the negatives <clears throat> of every um, offer that they have on the table. And I really do try to let them make the decision. My job is to give you advice, make you aware of any potential pitfalls, but you're the one that has to wake up every day and go to work. So I want it to be your decision. You know, like Keanu Pinder is a free agent now with, you know, offers or opportunities to play in multiple leagues in the world. He could stay in Spain. He could go to Japan and make huge money. He could stay in the NBL. All I'm going to do with Keanu is give him the positives, the negatives, the ramifications of each decision, and then you have to make the final call. So earlier in my career, when I was a little bit more nervous, Mark, I probably uh, was guilty of pushing you in certain directions. Uh, but that was due to lack of experience. And now I'm very much, you know, as long as I've given you the full scope, I want I want my, my players to make the final call. So, so just on that, Dan, I don't want to rewind a little bit because you've been involved heavily with the NBL when it struggled and now again when it is up and about. How difficult was that conversation with, and let's even say imports, but to keep them in Australia and to participate in the NBL when it was struggling? And even now, you know, there's, there is a conversation. I'm not sure I completely agree with it, that the NBL is the second best league in the world. But with your top clients, the, the balancing act of wanting to support the local NBL that we all grew up around as opposed to sending them off to Europe. And I know you said you don't push them one way or another, but where do you see the yeah. NBL sitting in that decision-making process for, for elite First players? Well, I can tell you that I'm, I'm adamant about this. If the NBL season went longer, such that NBL free agency coincided with European free agency, we would lose the bulk of our top players. The big advantage the NBL has is the fact that money is placed in front of these players months before they could get an offer in Europe. Wertho had options in Europe every single year, every year. You know, my European colleagues would be telling me, do not sign Mark Worthington back in the NBL. A team in Germany will take him. A team in Spain will take him. But at the end of the day, I was putting offers in front of Mark three to four months 
before Europe could come to the table. So it's like take the bird in hand or hope and roll the dice without the crystal ball. You never know, right? So what I think is this, whether the NBL is the second best league or not is up for debate, but I believe it's the most desirable place to play outside of the NBA because I went through 10 years of begging, pleading, selling like a secondhand car salesman to Americans to come to the NBL for a lot less money than they could have made in Europe. And I pulled out every trick in the book, sending them photos of girls on Bondi Beach, you know, bars on the Gold Coast, whatever I had to do, right? Um, Now I'm getting messages from agents, from other agencies and players that are on the fringe of the NBA or playing on the fringe of the EuroLeague, whatever it is, coming to me saying, hey, I see that you're really strong in Australia. How can you get me into that league? That's never happened before. So we can debate the level. We can debate can the Sydney Kings, you know, beat partisan Belgrade all day. But one thing that's not up for debate is there's nowhere in the basketball world that players enjoy living and waking up every day to go to work than here in the, in, in the NBL. I don't know if this is well documented enough, but you played a big hand in the Next Stars program being created in the NBL. Um, we've seen a, a fair level of success with early round draft picks and whatnot. Now with the NBA abolishing the one and done rule, where does the NBL need to go to evolve to stay relevant? And is there any conversations that you've had with the NBL moving forward? Yeah, I am very, very proud of the Next Stars program because to think that, you know, I sat there handing 750000 US dollars to Red Star Belgrade and the Jonah Bol- Bolton Bart and thought to myself, why am I giving this money to them when it should be going to an NBL team, right? And that's that's what's like spawned the idea of the Next Stars program for me that I wanted this buyout money to go to NBL teams. So that all kind of started there with the Jonah uh, time, whatever that was, 2017. Um, and what the Next Stars program has become has not only been amazing for draft prospects, but the guys are Jay Sean Tate, Mitch Creek, Xavier Cooks, uh, Jock Landale, all of the other guys that have gotten gotten gone on to bigger and better things because of the eyeballs on the NBL, next stars players, that is also an amazing byproduct of the program, right? But I think the biggest before I get to the to, to your question, the biggest compliment to the NBL and to this amazing program is that we forced the NBA to spend millions and millions of dollars creating a program so that they wouldn't lose future LaMelo balls to Australia. That's a pretty cool thing, right? Not only that, we then forced overtime to come up with millions and millions of dollars in infrastructure and spend to do their own version, right? So that's a lot to be proud of first and foremost, right? I think that the NBL did an amazing job of pivoting to European prospects uh, once those new pathways opened up. Now, I think the inevitable next step, um, because the NBL, you know, it didn't work out for Mojave King down here. He didn't really have coaches that trusted him. Um, You know, lost Dyson to the Ignite program, kind of as a result of seeing what happened to Mojave. Didn't get Alex Tui. 
Um, I think the next logical step to have success with a Mojave King, keep a Dyson Daniels, keep an Alex Tui, is to form a G League Ignite style team in the NBL. Whether it's in Canberra or the Gold Coast or Darwin remains to be seen. But I think the logical next step is to create a team with five or six prospects on the team and then sprinkle in a David Barlow, an AJ Ogilvy type. Guys at the end of their careers that are good for 10 to 12 minutes a game, but are going to be amazing mentors, locker room presence. That is the key to not losing these guys to the other pathways because they have to play in those environments. They are... There's no other way but to give them 27 plus minutes a game. And I think that is the next logical pivot of the program. And if that goes ahead, I think we are going to see a fully rejuvenated Next Stars program. And I think we'll have a, a plethora of uh, high level prospects coming to the league. I love the idea. I hadn't heard that. It's, I, I see that. My brain's ticking over already. That's. Yeah, it's called the Cairns Taipans. Um, <laughs> um, True. You've just, the last couple of drafts, you've been involved with people that have gone very high in the draft. What's what's draft night experience for you as an agent? And I'm sure there's a plethora of phone calls that go on and conversations behind closed doors. What What's that like for you in the moment? What's that like for you in the build-up and what's the aftermath like for you as someone that's got a very high draft pick? Yeah, the last two drafts have been been interesting. Um, having two top 10 picks has meant that the kind of 45 days leading in was a circus. The amount of jockeying and phone calls, uh, you know, requesting getting the players in for workouts was a shit show, to be honest. With Josh, we didn't think Josh would look good in that environment. We didn't think that workouts would help Josh. So we very strategically said no to every single workout. We just weren't going to do them. We were going to go off of the body of work he did in the NBL, right? As the process went on, we made very last second decisions to do private workouts with two teams, with Golden State and OKC, right? We felt like that was maybe the ceiling of as, as high as it could go. We also thought that both would be a good fit. Um, so we, we pivoted, but it was an environment where, you know, it wasn't a showcase where all 30 teams come in and watch you. And if you flunk on that day, 30 teams are disappointed. It was a lower risk. Let's see how he does in this Golden State workout. If he does great, amazing. If he doesn't do well, then only one team saw a bad workout, right? Um, it went phenomenally well. To this day, it's the best Josh has ever shot the basketball in his entire life. He literally looked like uh, like Steph Curry for an hour and a half. Um, that workout I conducted smack bang in the middle of Boomers Camp, which Gorge didn't love from his workload standpoint, but we did it there and I had the Boomers coaches run the workout. So he had the entire Golden State brass come into the, uh, to the facility in Irvine from Steve Kerr to Joe Lacob and every single assistant coach and strength coach and whatnot. Uh, and then we all went out and had dinner uh, back at my place afterwards. And it was it just went really well, right? Um, then fast forward uh, a week later, Josh doesn't make the team, plays his game versus Nigeria, does really well in that Vegas, you know, exhibition game. And we had a week 
between then and the draft. We were like, you know, what, what do we do? Do we just sit on our hands and wait? Or do we allow one of these other teams begging and pleading to, to get another work? And we decided, all right, you know what? Even though it's high at six, it would be amazing if he got drafted by OKC because we saw a pathway to tons of minutes and we went ahead and we did it, right? So, you know, the workout happened. We all know we all know what happened. But the truth is, were though, from the day that that workout happened until the draft, I did not hear peep out of OKC. So I thought he wasn't their guy and they were just being polite. And the fact that I didn't hear anything meant, you know, we were going to go lower, right? Every single team from seven to 17 blew me up nonstop in the lead up to the draft. And you arrive, you know, in New York three days before the actual draft and my phone didn't stop jockeying, looking for Intel. Where do we need to get to, to draft Josh? You know, Memphis traded up to 10 thinking that Josh would be there for them. Right. They went from 17 or 18 to 10, hoping that, and the fact that the one team that did not contact me once was the one that took Josh is a really good window into how much fluff and how much theatrics go on in the process. Right. With Dyson, I was absolutely sure Dyson was being picked up by a different team on draft night. I'm not going to say who, because they did not stop contacting me. Their pick came up. It was obviously ahead of eight. Their pick came up and they took somebody else. So I sat there thinking, what was with the 1,000 phone calls that we just went through over the last 60 days? Um, But that's the draft. It's a whole bunch of lying and a whole bunch of bullshit, and a whole bunch of people telling you your client will not go past us. If he's there where we when we're picking, he's coming to town, right? But you know that that is how this whole thing works. People want to send out mixed messages to throw other teams off because they know everyone has loose lips and everyone shares their intel, and they hope that by throwing other teams off, they can get the player they really desire, right? As I call it, it's lying season. As I've sat back and forgive this reasonably long question, but you've said so many things and it's been incredible this last half hour and so many things you say take me back to my experience where I got hand-delivered to Leon Rose and became Leon's first NBA client, sight unseen when Leon cut his teeth with me and I wouldn't have it any other way, just like Wertho will tell everyone that he wouldn't have it any other way. Now, Leon built what he did into CAA, into president of the New York Knicks through, in my opinion, doing things the right way. The anti what you just said, he even hit me. He would not allow me to get on a plane to come and work out in the, for any tribe back then. He, you've got a first round spot. All you can do is harm. I, I believe Dante Exum was the same when, I yep. can't recall who, no, was Dante with you? Yeah, yeah. Right, so they right. hit Dante as well, so there's certainly merit in that. But I, but I suppose my question is that from the outside looking in, having seen you conduct what you do and being close with a lot of your players, you've built what you've done right. You've done it earning respect along the way and not bullshitting people. And as you've described with the front office, I, I guess my long-winded question is, are you a lifetime agent or like Leon, who's my very easy comparison, do you envisage yourself at some stage stepping into another role in basketball and perhaps changing the way that a particular NBA franchise or NBL franchise or NBA, 
is perceived yeah, in that question, space? Chris, I um, probably 12 months ago, I sat in Leon's wine room <laughs> in New York, a beautiful room in his magnificent condo building uh, in, uh, in, uh, in New York. And, um, we talked about not only his pathway and, and Gorge also helping Leon get his first client, you and Rick Brunson. Um, apparently Gorge is the agent maker. Um, but, but we talked about the pathway to him becoming president of the Knicks. And he asked me like, what's the end game for me? And I sat there and I very honestly said to Leon, I said, look, there are, five or six NBA teams that I would leave being an agent for. And I know Mark's grinning because he knows the number one team on my list, which I would, uh, which I would, would, would throw in the towel on being an agent. And that would mean Leon would be out of a job. Um, <laughs> but in essence, the way I, the way I always envision this is if I was ever to say goodbye to this industry um, aside from a select few NBA teams that I would really have a really good hard look at, um, for me, it's taking a role with Australian basketball, whether it's the NBL or Basketball Australia. And I think very bluntly, Basketball Australia has been one of the worst run organizations in Australian sport. I think it's been horribly mismanaged. I'm sorry for whoever that offends, but I, I you know, you guys know me well enough to know that I, I'm not going to pull punches. Um, to leave for a role that will have an actual lasting impact on the future of Australian basketball and, and, and for me, most importantly, the Boomers program, that's something that I would consider uh, one day in the future if I was ever to move home to Australia. Um, but I, I do think about it. Right now, I'm absolutely loving this new lease on life with Octagon and we've got some really exciting things that we're working on and we've got some amazing players in the pipeline and, you know, wait till you guys get a look at Dash Daniels. Um, uh, no, yeah, we've seen him. Amongst He's others, incredible. You know, and, and uh, look, right now I'm, I'm head down, immersed in this, loving it and loving what kind of resources I can put behind Kiwi and Aussie players that I was never able to do earlier in my career. And Octagon gives me the ability to open doors that I was never able to open. Right. So um, as of now, not looking down the road, uh, but hypothetically, there's only really two things that I would leave this for still in the basketball, you know, canopy. And, and, and that is uh, a top job with an NBA team or I don't know what role exactly, but something that would be able to uh, really make some long overdue changes uh, with regards to, to Basketball Australia, the Federation. Just before Wurdo finishes up, and we're, we're really grateful for your time, mate, but I, I think, it, I just feel it's worth mentioning that there's been a lot said about the Boomers' preparation for the last Olympic Games and how they came together and the facilities and the resources they had. I'm not sure enough people know that you had a really big hand in that. and. You, you say that, and I'm, I'm not even going to ask you to comment about it if you don't want to, but uh, the resources you have been able to provide Basketball Australia and more so its players behind the scenes, I think, is a testament to what you do that you don't need the credit for, you don't need people knowing, you don't need it spoken about. But I think we're, we're, we're far enough away from it now that 
I think there are a lot of people in Australian basketball who do know that thank you for what you were able to provide the Boomers and be, again, a really integral part of getting them as prepared as they were to do what they did and win that yeah, bronze medal at the last I really, I really game. appreciate so, that, Chris. Like, for me, um, there's work. And then when it comes to Boomer stuff, my agent, Kat, gets flung out the window. Uh, I don't care who's my client, who isn't my client. I genuinely remove the agent cap and all I want to do is win medals. And thank God, you know, Gorge and Jason Smith trusted me enough to host the Boomers camp and essentially set up the whole process and, 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 and everything that went on in the lead up. Obviously what Patty does is amazing and he forks out, you know, tons of his own money to do X, Y, Z, to push the program along and make sure that it's an amazing experience to, to, to ensure that we, never are outdone chemistry wise by any other country but to be able to do that kind of goes hand in hand with what i spoke about earlier you know that was all done at my expense because i'm not agent daniel Mulvin in that environment i'm just the proudest kind of like son of australian basketball right um and and that's the stuff that i love that i am able to do love that i'm given the opportunity to do love that there's enough trust with the people that I grew up in this industry with to allow me to do that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, we're three months away from another campaign into a world cup and, um, I'm doing everything I can, you know, alongside or, or, or behind the scenes with Jason Smith to again, try to ensure that not only we have the best players available, but anything the players need, the basketball Australia isn't providing, um, I'm the first to put my hand up to try to fill those gaps. So um, it's it's the one time where I get to be a fan and actually enjoy basketball without worrying about contracts and and and, and business decisions. Um, and albeit, you know, it's only a month every you know four years essentially for each of those two tournaments. Um, that to me is the most enjoyable basketball in my you know daily running. So I appreciate you uh, saying that, Chris. Well, I think we've taken a lot out of this podcast, A, that you're the next CEO of Basketball Australia, B, <laughs> you're the next president of the New York Knicks, and Latrell Sprewell will be the next head coach of the New York Knicks. If you didn't know, Latrell Sprewell is Daniel's favourite player of all time. Uh, but I'd like to thank you, mate. This has been a great chat. I think it's a great insight. I think your name has become a household name within basketball in Australia but I don't think people necessarily know your story and for you to tell us everything and give us a peek behind the curtain has been amazing today so thank you very much mate thank you guys for having me on I uh I just want you to know that I I listen to this uh I listen to this podcast uh cruising up and down the 405 in my never-ending drives from Orange County up to West Hollywood Beverly Hills so uh please never change and uh and uh, I really enjoyed this. So hopefully uh, we'll do this all again next year. Yeah, we'll do it at your house, mate, when we, we have our first road trip of the Has Been Hoops podcast doing a Chris Anstey tour. I don't know if I can plug anything else. Maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe with my comeback, you can get me a 10-day with the Warriors or something like that in the meantime. Now we're talking. <laughs> I like it. Thank, Thank you very guys. much. Thanks, Dan.